1: Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts.
2: There is a queer angle to every issue, and we will find it. But don't expect us to be nice or politically correct. Nothing is sacred, and the team will be finding queer and profane wherever we can on Joy 94.9. Is nothing sacred?
3: Hello and welcome to Is Nothing Sacred. We have a very exciting show for you this week. A little bit different. Jim and James are both away. So Sarah and I are taking over the studio, which means we're just going to talk about science for the whole hour. Yeah, super exciting science. And this week we are doing space.
1: Ooh. Ooh, which after that I'm pretty sure you have to say <laughs> the final frontier. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have two guests talking tonight. We've got um, first up we'll have... Duncan Forbes from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne Uni. And right now in the studio, we've also got Dr. Paul Lasky. Hello, Paul.
0: Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
3: Very excellent to have you here. Real live astrophysicist to answer. I, I have quite a few questions about the universe, most of which are not very well articulated <laughs> we can get to that a little bit later we're also playing songs tonight that are vaguely space themed um if you have any song requests if you have any questions for any of our guests we would love to hear from you or even if you just like space um you can text in on 0427 join 949 that's 0427 949. or you can call 1300 join 949 or email on air one word at joy.org.au and now we have um,
1: our special space interview, and we're starting with Professor Duncan Forbes. Welcome, Duncan.
4: Oh, thanks. Thanks, Stephanie. Good to be here.
1: Um, we are very excited to have you here. Duncan has worked in um, astrophysics across three continents, effectively, um, seeing as you do some of your work in Hawaii. And you study galaxies. So you study the, the furthest things away, basically. Is that it?
4: Yes, that's right. Yes, so galaxies are just collections of stars. So, you know, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, and I'm interested in other galaxies that we can see out there.
1: Yeah, and um, I think you've done some work on looking at galaxies colliding with each other. So, is that something that that we might, that we can see? Is that
4: something? Yes, yes indeed. So, it happens all the time. Um, you know, in some ways, the universe is, is a violent place, and um, galaxies crash into each other all the time. So unlike, um, you know, when cars smash in, when two galaxies crash into each other, they form a new galaxy.
1: An uber-galaxy.
4: An uber-galaxy, if you like. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So sometime in the future, um, our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, is expected to collide with our neighbour galaxy, Andromeda. And so, when that happens, uh, indeed, we'll form uh, a new, even larger galaxy. So, does
3: that mean that the different galaxies are moving around the whole time, or is it that some stay still and others just come along and crash into it?
4: Yeah, they're generally all moving. I mean, they all um, they all move apart in the sense of following the the, the flow of the whole universe. So the whole universe is expanding, so in that sense, all the galaxies are moving apart. But but uh, occasionally they're close enough together and or moving towards each other that they that they actually collide with each other.
0: Duncan I wonder if uh, you could give a sense of the time scale for this to happen for for example the Milky Way to collide with the neighbouring galaxy just so people don't you know, have Worry trouble about sleeping it. tonight? Yeah, <laughs> right.
4: Worry. yeah. Most most uh, these timescales are very long, so we're talking billions of years. So several billions of years before we expect uh, these two galaxies to collide. But it, but it is true the Andromeda galaxy is coming towards us quite rapidly at the moment. Oh.
3: So, so I guess uh, by definition, galaxies are quite far away, and the light hmm. that we see from the stars at night, you know, are many light years away. Does that mean that? the data that you're working with is really, really old data or do you have, in the sense that it's taken a long time to get to us here on Earth or is there a way to sure. figure out what's happening now?
4: Yes, that's right. I was just saying that telescopes are like time machines so the the, the light that we see from a galaxy has taken millions of years to, to get to us.
1: So you work with the the telescope that you mainly work here on Earth is the, um, what's it called, the Keck Telescope in Hawaii? And yeah, I believe uh Steph you've actually been to to see it.
3: Yes, I did go to Hawaii a few years ago. I was very unprepared. I went to Hawaii where um packing I think several bikinis, some sundresses and a pair of thongs, maybe a sun hat and some sunscreen and I think a pair of jeans. And um yeah, it was quite quite chilly at the top of that mountain. <laughs>
4: Yeah, well, the great thing about um, Hawaii is it has a big range of climates, so it can be nice and warm on the beach <laughs> and uh, very cold up the mountain.
1: And why is the, why is the telescope best in Hawaii? And uh, what's happening with the new telescope that I think is thought being thought about being built there?
4: Yes, that's right. Well, the, the best place to put a, a telescope is on, on top of a mountain where the, the air flows over the top of the mountain very smoothly. And so the best locations um, on Earth are actually um, so the Big Island of Hawaii, one of the islands of the Canary Islands, and also the Andes mountain chain in Chile. Mm. And so that's where the three main astronomical sites are around the world. So the mountain on the Big Island, Mauna Kea, is about 14,000 feet or about 4,000 meters up, and it's got very stable air. It's a nice dark site as well. Um uh, so it's the, one of the best places in the world to, to put a telescope.
1: So, would the so best place idea. for a telescope though? Would that be out of this atmosphere, basically in space? Ah,
4: well, that's another. That's another good place to put it. Costs is obviously a little bit more expensive to do that. <laughs> um, so, it's you know it's a fraction of the cost to build a telescope on the ground, and and we're building. You know, we have technologies these days that try to compensate for the atmosphere that we have to look through. But indeed, that's the main. Um, advantage of having a space telescope put it above the atmosphere you don't have to worry about the twinkling of stars and you you also get to see some wavelengths up there that you don't get on get on earth so well so for example the ultraviolet is still largely blocked out by the atmosphere.
3: um, That was possibly the first time anyone's um, referred to the twinkling of stars as a problem (laughs) (laughs) usually people enjoy the twinkle Um, what's the challenge with the twinkling of stars?
4: Oh, the twinkling just tells you that, that, that that's caused by the Earth's atmosphere. So that means, you know, the atmosphere above us, above the telescope, is, is bubbling away, if you like. And that um, makes it more difficult for astronomers. That um, reduces the sharpness of the galaxies or the stars that we look at. So if we, again, put ourselves in space with a space telescope, then, then everything is very sharp and we get great images of, of galaxies.
3: No, yeah, this is fantastic. Um, we are going to go to just a few short messages. Uh, if you're able to stay on the phone, Duncan, mm-hmm. um, sure. we will be right back. And if you have any questions, you can SMS on oh four two seven joy nine four nine. That's oh four two seven five six nine nine four nine, or email on air at joy dot a. Sorry, start on air at joy.org.au to ask our guests any questions about space. And I'm sure they'll do their very, very best to answer it. You are on Joy 94.9.
1: You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station Joy
4: 94.9.
1: And welcome back to Is Nothing Sacred on Joy 94.9. And we'd like to welcome a new member. Thank you, Edward from Seddon, for signing up. And if you sign up as well, you could win a Holden Spark uh, brand new car. And uh, just go to the, our website, www.joy.org.au. And tonight on There's Nothing Sacred, we're talking about space. And we're here with uh, Professor Duncan Forbes and Dr. Paul Lasky. And uh, Duncan... We would love to ask you now, what is dark matter?
4: Well, dark matter, I have to admit, is a bit of an embarrassment for astronomers because we don't <laughs> know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we infer its presence because um, it, is, it, is it has mass and therefore... Um,
1: oh, so it, it has, has mass, fraction. you just yeah, can't it has, see it.
4: We just can't see it exactly. It doesn't emit radiation in the, in the normal way. So we so we measure its uh, properties indirectly, if you like. So how? we think it's ma- you know has mass. We think it's matter, but because it doesn't emit any light, we call it dark, and we don't right. know exactly what it is.
1: So does it um, cause gravity around it if it's got yes. mass? And how yes, much is there
4: if you can't see? Well, it? lots lots of it. So that's part of the embarrassing part is that it probably dominates over all of the the visible normal matter that we can see perhaps by by a factor of 10 to 1 so wow. our galaxy is probably dominated by dark matter rather than visible matter
1: and is it like in balls like a planet <laughs> a dark planet <laughs> an anti matter well, planet or is it just a an amorphous cloud
4: well it, it it could be i mean we've 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 been working on it for a while now and so i think we've got some constraints on what it could be so it's unlikely to be large-sized objects like like balls or you know or very dark planets or asteroids and things like that um, we do think it is probably some exotic type of um, matter and it's probably very small and so particle physicists uh, have been searching for dark matter because we think dark matter could just be a very small particle but there's just has a small mass, but there's just so much of it, it adds up to to a very large quantity.
3: Can I ask a bit of a dumb question? So when you say something that you can't see that has mass, like that makes me think of black holes, how do you tell the difference between dark matter and a black hole?
4: Well, again, it's actually quite difficult. So, I mean, it is possible that some amount of the dark matter is... Is made of black holes, but um, as I said, we think we've put some constraints on, say, the size of these, of the dark matter particles, and so we don't think it's large things like black holes. We think it's uh, very small, almost subatomic, like particles.
1: And are they going to uh, contribute to our galaxies colliding and ripping galaxies apart?
4: Yes, indeed. So if you think uh, think about. Um, a galaxy is having a size or a cross-section, if you like, then um, dark matter essentially makes the galaxy much larger. So the, the chances of two galaxies colliding are, are much greater when they, they're both surrounded by very large quantities of dark matter.
0: This is actually one of the better pieces of evidence for the existence of dark matter is, is from the collision of two galaxies, I think it is. Um, Duncan, I wonder if you could say something about the bullet cluster.
4: Um, yeah. So one of the evidences for dark matter comes from um, looking at the motions of galaxies, or in this case, clusters of galaxies when when they collide. And so you can basically add up all the mass that you can uh, see that, that's visible, and then compare that with your with your models of the motions of, of galaxies in a collection of and a cluster of galaxies, and you find that there's a whole lot missing. In other words, all that missing mass that doesn't produce any light is presumably dark matter.
3: Is there dark matter on Earth, or is it, like, can it exist within an atmosphere? Could there be dark matter in this room?
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yes, I suppose, so. yes, I guess it, in, in, in some ways. I mean, it's... Um, there is a certain, <laughs> yes, I know, it's a bit spooky. So there's a certain... Uh, density of dark matter, if, if you like, a certain number amount of mass associated in, the, in a certain volume. We think that most of the dark matter in our galaxy lives out in the halo. Um, but, but What's yes, the halo? Um, the halo is just the outer parts of, uh, of our galaxy, the outer reaches, if you like. And sometimes we call it the dark halo because it's a halo mm. what I think is uh, full of dark matter.
1: So when you look up at the Milky Way at night... And then right in the middle, there's a really dark patch. That's just, mm. that's, I thought that was dust, as in...
4: And you're, and you're right, it is, it is just dust. So it is, that's material that's blocking the light from the stars behind it. So in that sense, that, that has nothing to do with dark matter that we've been just talking about.
1: Would dark matter be able to block light? Is that why um, our skies are dark and there's only a few stars you can see instead of everything being white?
4: Yeah, no, no, generally not. So the um, when um, when the light is obscured, then it's, it's some screen like like dust that's causing, that's causing that those gaps that you see, if you like.
1: Yeah. Um, so just to change tack, this is my uh, favourite question at the moment. Um, there was a very brief news story. And it said that there's been a comet found with an amino acid. And just to give people an idea, if you don't know, all of our DNA um, goes to building proteins which make us, and that is made with amino acids formed together in a long string. So single amino acids found on on a comet. Does that mean there's life out there?
4: Well, it certainly means that there's some of the building blocks for life out there. So, I mean, comets have um, have a lot of water in them in general, often, you know, as, as ice. And um, I guess as this discovery found that they they can also contain these uh, very important amino acids uh, for life. So some people have suggested that um, comets uh, might have made a contribution to, to life here on Earth. I mean, we certainly know that in the early stages of Earth's development, it would have been bombarded by like comets and, and meteorites and so on, and so some of those those things that impacted with the Earth could well have brought um, these uh, molecules and amino acids. Uh, yeah, because you know, they're very complex. Space,
1: I mean, they're hard to make. Yeah. People try yeah. and make primordial soups yeah. in a lab, but right. yeah, it's pretty hard to make an amino acid.
4: That's mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah, so- exactly. So it's, it's quite incredible, isn't it? So it's, it, it is certainly one. One One idea for how uh, <laughs> life got started on on earth.
3: Yeah. so where would the comet have come
4: from? Um, well, the c- comets can be located in different parts of the of the solar system and have different orbits so sometimes they they come from um, right out beyond the orbit of Pluto, for example mm. and have a very long orbital period and they can have their orbit um, disrupted if you like, as they're coming in so they can if they might gravitationally interact with say jupiter that might change its orbit might might make the comet or, or the asteroid head you know closer to earth and actually impact on on earth and so on
1: um this is actually a complete aside i heard uh, like a long time ago they were talking about the dish in australia and that's necessary to look for asteroids down in the southern hemisphere because there's not many there's not many kind of Astronom- astronomical research centres in the southern hemisphere to look at what's happening. Um, is that still the case? I went to our Carula research place um, mm. years ago and that was just amazing, but I don't think there's much research done there now.
4: Certainly um, in terms of radio telescopes, though so Parks is a, a single-dish radio telescope, most of the radio telescopes in the southern hemisphere are located um, you know, here in Australia. Um, there has recently been another array of radio telescopes built in Chile. Um, and we also, mm-hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere, have quite a large number of optical telescopes. Again, Chile, Australia, uh, South, um, South Africa. So we look for asteroids with, with all of these uh, telescopes. So you can look with a radio telescope, look for radio waves that might be emitted or, or bounce back from asteroids. And then and optical telescopes as well are taking images all the time to try to find faint, uh, well, hard-to-detect asteroids that might be on an orbit that could take them close to Earth. So, you know, clearly it's an important job to monitor these these asteroids um, and try and understand if any of them are coming, you know, if they're large and if they're coming our way.
1: <laughs> I imagine there's not that much we can do about it anyway, so maybe well, it's best not to know question. sometimes. <laughs> I right. will we'll
0: add to that that um, just speaking of Park's telescope and sort of searching for life... Um Yuri Milner is a, a, a Russian billionaire, I guess is the only way of saying it, and he's uh, put a lot of money into the Parkes telescope very recently to actually search for extraterrestrial intelligence, whatever that means in terms of actually searches and things like that. But it's actually uh, a large amount of Parkes uh, time is going to be spent searching for E.T. Oh, great.
4: Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I mean, obviously, there's not been any detections uh, uh, so far, but yeah, it's, I'm um, sure it's... there's lots of lots of interesting, um, you know, stars uh, to get to look to direct your your radio telescope back Because, as you know, in these last few years, we've de- um, detected planets going around nearby stars, and we're now up to several thousand planets that we know about. So it would seem inevitable that one of them will contain um, life of some sort
1: Well, that seems a mighty fine place to leave the uh, listeners <laughs> that idea of there's life out there
4: Definitely
3: Thank you so much for joining us tonight Duncan, this um, late evening so and we right. really appreciate it
4: Yeah, thanks very much Thank, Thank you. you
3: You can find more Joycasts and show blogs go to joy.org.au hello you are listening to is nothing sacred on joy 94.9 and tonight we've been talking about space we're going to return to space we hope you enjoyed that space related song but we're going to take a little bit of a detour Um, we have jackie o'brien on the line hello are you there jackie oh hello are you there jackie yeah hi hello Um, Sorry, we've got the phones a little bit mixed up. So um, you're from Zoos Victoria and I understand that Zoos Victoria has been working on a project to help orangutans. Can you tell us a little bit about the project?
2: Sure, sure. So for the past um, seven years we've been campaigning to get palm oil labelled in Australia and um, essentially palm oil is probably the biggest threat to orangutans in the wild, so um, particularly deforestation from palm oil plantations. Um, and so in Australia, it's palm oil's not actually labelled as palm oil, it's just labelled as vegetable oil. Um, and so the zoo has been working very hard to try and actually get palm oil labelled in Australia on food products, um, just to, I suppose, expose that that's an ingredient in our food and then to look at ways that we can actually make palm oil sustainable. So...
3: I mean, that seems like a very sensible thing to do. What are the, the barriers that are getting in the way of that happening at the moment?
2: Well, it's, it's really quite interesting because um, exactly what we want um, in terms of labelling has happened in the European Union. In fact, it was actually inspired by um, the work and the, the advocacy that's been going on in Australia. Um, but they got their, um, their labelling laws through um, at the end of 2015, um, but I guess the, the key barriers are um, it, it really is industry and industry actually making the move to having palm oil labelled. Um, so we've been working hard with industry, but also with governments, um, really to represent the voice of Australians um, who really do want palm oil labelled.
3: Is there anything that I guess the public can do to help the campaign?
2: Yeah, most definitely. Um, so um anybody who, who wants to actually add their name to the call for palm oil labelling um can head to zoo dot org dot au forward slash palm oil. Um and they can actually sign uh we're collecting signatures on a a petition and we're actually representing them to government. Um and particularly it's it's actually quite timely because this year um a ministerial council it's a It's called the Food Standards Australia New Zealand Ministerial Council, and they are representatives from across the states and territories of Australia, but also from New Zealand as well. They're actually looking at a specific proposal to get palm oil labelled in in Australia and New Zealand, Um, and we believe around November they'll probably vote on that. So it's really important that if people feel deeply about this, that they... Get online um, and they actually sign that petition because we can present that to those ministers to show them that Australians really do want palm oil labelled.
1: Are there any companies that are already labelling that that wanted to label and that are labelling sustainable or not sustainable themselves?
2: Yeah, um, so some are, um, and I'm not quite sure if I can mention them—the huh. actual brand name. <laughs> Maybe <so> not. <laughs> but um, it, the two major. Um, uh, supermarkets. I'm sure your your listeners will, will know who they are. Um, they're home or their generic brands. They're actually labelling palm oil at the moment, which is great. Um, and there's also um, a few major brands that um, produce a lot of um, they produce a lot of toiletries, but they also produce a lot of um, ice creams, biscuits, chocolates, which palm oil is quite prevalent in. Um, have been doing a lot. And basically that's because there's such a push at the international level uh, to have palm oil labelled that um, they're also doing it in Australia. Um, To get palm oil labelled in Australia actually means um, it's going to be a level playing field for all food manufacturers and and all all food producers um, who use palm oil, and that's really important. And that's what we're seeing in the European Union. Um, A lot of food manufacturers there have said actually it's the best thing because it's the best thing for the industry because it does make it a level playing field. Mm. Why
1: do you think it's taken longer, basically, in Australia <laughs> than in the EU? I mean, the EU's a long way,
2: long way bigger. It breaks my heart, but I mean, it's great, it's fantastic for the the EU, and 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 more power to to the EU for getting it through. Um, I think it was a combination of. It was just the right time. Um, at the time, that, that, that there was a, a whole range of food labelling um, uh, regulations that were going through the European Union, and this one actually kind of got through by stealth, if you like. Um, it was actually the European Association of Zoos that sort of tacked it on to, to some draft legislation and got it through the European Union. So it kind of happened quite quietly, um, whereas in Australia we've been very vocal mm. about um, the need for palm oil labelling and, and particularly um, the reason why. So so the environmental devastation that's attached to palm oil that's produced in an unsustainable way and so much of that, the palm oil that, that is coming into Australia as well is actually produced in an unsustainable way. Um, so, yeah, I think it's probably timing um and luck and also you know in terms of the the biggest barriers um you know industry there are a lot of changes we we understand that that are required on labels and and industry are you know they they're not exactly um i suppose uh, enthusiastic to take up um, changes mm. so that's probably been one of the major challenges is actually working with industry to to show them that Australians want this there's nothing to be afraid of if they're doing the right thing then they should be really clear about labelling palm oil in food products.
3: That sounds like a very sensible way <laughs> forward thank you so much for ch- chatting with us um, this yeah, evening well. Jackie. Thank you very much take care. Thanks. Thank you. So we're going to go to a few messages and then come back and get back into space. So we are going to be chatting more with Paul. So if you have any questions for him, please SMS on 0427 JOY949 or email on air at joy.org.au. You're listening to Is Nothing Sacred.
0: Joy94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au.
3: hello you are listening to is nothing sacred on joy 94.9 we were just chatting about orangutans but now we're going back to space and we have a message from our regular host jim who says steph he's still Mm -hmm. telling me what to do even from (laughs) far away in brunswick we are actually (laughs) we are all actually in space earth is our biggest spaceship from jim kiss hug Kind of true, we are moving through space.
1: Yep, yeah, it's nice to think of that, and we can think about how fast we're hurtling through space.
3: <laughs> so, we have in the studio, um, who've been chatting with kind of a little bit, um, Dr. Paul Lasky from Monash University, but now we get to talk about your research and uh, we saw that you were been starring in the media recently with your new discovery around gravitational waves. So I think the first question has to be what are gravitational waves?
0: (laughs) That's the question on everyone's lips. Um, I I should state that uh, I haven't been starring really and there's been you know a thousand of my closest colleagues sort of, sort of made this discovery altogether um but so gravitational waves are these very tiny ripples in the fabric of space-time is the way we think about them these are things that were predicted by albert einstein actually in uh 1916 so oh, 100, 100 years ago that's uh, a good story almost exactly 100 years ago because we actually detected them for the first time late last year um and so it's yeah a beautiful story um it's literally took us that long to detect these things these are really tiny ripples of gravity that travel uh, at the speed of light and they come from the most violent collisions in the universe
1: yeah how are they how do they form
0: so the ones that we've detected we've detected uh, two lots now uh, and they were both formed from the merger or the collision of two black holes uh, and each black hole weighed around about 30 times the mass of our sun wow. and these two black holes basically spiraled in towards one another and then collided to become one black hole and one black hole weighing around about 60 times the mass of our sun and during that violent merger these gravitational waves these tiny ripples sort of propagated away from the the merger um, they traveled over a billion light years to reach our what's called an interferometer, which is a, a gravitational wave detector, uh, and we detected them.
1: Would they have been stronger at the source?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it actually turns out that they don't fall off uh, in in the way that people think about it. Think People think normally, you know, for yeah, light, like for it. example. Um, and so while they definitely would be stronger at the source, even if you were... You know the distance of the sun away, for example, they wouldn 't have been all that strong
4: okay.
3: um, I have two questions i don 't know mm. which to ask first. One is I guess so usually when two things collide like on in on earth, there <laughs> might be noise, mm-hmm. dust, maybe some vibrations so like what 's the conditions that I guess lead to gravity like that 's pretty profound mm. like <laughs> gravity is created, and I know. Everything that has mass has gravity, but like mm-hmm. to create waves of gravity that 's pretty big it 's it's it's not really th- a question.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can try and answer the non question anyway i suppose um, so you 're absolutely right. so you know if you collided two things in a, in a huge collision here on Earth, you would create a huge amount of noise, you would create you would create light, you would create heat, things along those lines. but of course, black holes are nothingness right they're just they 're just holes in space with a lot of mass. Uh, and so, when you collide two of them really you don 't create any light so you 've got no way of really seeing these with a conventional telescope um, you don 't really you don 't create any heat, anything like that. you basically just create gravitational waves, um, and that 's about all
3: wow and my second question, which is kind of related to that, is you said that it took billions of years to get to your infraferometer and also that you 'd never detected them until now so how do you design equipment for something you've never seen or found before <laughs>
0: yeah sure yeah great question and and this is i mean it's a it's a there's a fascinating history here um and people have been designing these experiments for uh probably the last 40 50 years and it turns out what these gravitational waves do is they stretch and squeeze space in different directions so they'll you know the, the distance between you and i for example actually changes as a gravitational wave passes through and that's actually the thing that you can try and measure so these experiments are uh they're l-shaped experiments and there's so there's two arms that go off at right angles to one another and each arm is four kilometers long and what you do is you pass a laser beam into both of the arms the laser beam travels that four kilometers hits a mirror at the end and comes back and there's a vacuum tunnel the whole, way, the whole way down, so this is an incredibly expensive experiment. Um, and you basically are looking for changes in the, the distance of that arm, but on an absolutely minute scale. So those arms are four kilometres long, and the change in distance that we measured is less than a thousandth the size of a nucleus of an atom.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: Absolutely tiny. So this is the most precise measurement that's ever been made.
1: How um, long has this been up and running before you found the first...
0: Yeah, so um, it, it's it's been up and running since around about 2002, but with continual design improvements. So from about 2002 till about 2010, it was up and running, but at a level that, where it wasn't really sensitive enough to detect these gravitational waves. It was then shut down for five years, major technology upgrade, got a factor of about four better in sensitivity, and it was switched on and 2 days after it was switched on we detected the first gravitational two wave 2 days 2 days
1: yeah so how often are these gravitational waves coming through so us so
0: this this turned out to be a little bit of a fluke that it was uh, on for 2 days we've now <laughs> we've now had them on for 55 days in total and we detected two lots of gravitational waves
1: that's still a lot that's because still a lot. that yep. squeezing and compression i mean this is happening to us as well on a minute scale obviously but
0: yes Absolutely.
1: And I think this can cause... I read in your uh, article, I think, about this causing space memory. So can you measure what's happened in the past?
0: So uh, this is something that we're trying to do. Unfortunately, we can't go back and measure something that happened in the past. Um, so the idea of memory is, is an even more exotic concept than just the gravitational waves. Um, basically, the idea is that after a gravitational wave passes through the space is permanently stretched or squeezed. So, you know, the distance between you and I is is some distance before a gravitational wave passes. But after that wave passes through, that's actually changed. Now, again, by an absolute minute amount. Mm-hmm. And we've written a paper very recently which says that we can hope to detect that in the near future, Ooh. which is... I think, exciting.
3: So what does this mean for our world? <laughs> like, well, I guess in terms of what's the next step and also from a kind of philosophical perspective as well.
0: So the next step is, is exciting if you're an astronomer or an astrophysicist. Um, basically, we've now seen two mergers of black holes. But the idea is we're going to see a lot more. So, you know, we saw these two with a with a pretty good regularity. Every, say, 20 days we expect to see one. The instrument's actually been shut down again. It's going to be turned back on later this year with, again, a slight increase in sensitivity, which means you can see further out into the universe and you can see even more of these things. So you'll mm-hmm. start seeing them more often. Um, and so we'll start, you know, actually understanding black holes in a way that we've never been able to understand them before because we've, you know, we have some observational evidence for black holes in the past from, you know, you infer their existence from, from other things, but this is actually directly viewing black holes using these gravitational waves as our tool. Wow. So it's really a new field of astronomy that's just been opened up in the last few months.
1: Oh, that is exciting. Can we ask a uh, science nerd question?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: is I think a black we can hole... ask different
3: questions.
0: <laughs> is a
1: black hole a wormhole?
0: A black hole is not a wormhole,
1: um, uh,
0: but... Uh, they are very similar. They're very related concepts. Really? Yes, absolutely.
1: So what is a wormhole?
0: So a wormhole is, in terms of general relativity, these are all just things that are huge amounts of curvature of space-time. Right. And a black hole is curvature of space-time where there's this singularity at the at the middle of it, which is this you know incredible mass. Um, a wormhole is curvature of space-time that allows you to link up two different regions of space-time. And so, at least in principle, this could allow you to travel to another corner of the universe without having to actually traverse the distance between those two points, in principle. In practice, this is going to be very hard to do, for many, many reasons. Um, They've only been, you know, it's only a theoretical construct at the moment. Um, You need exotic types of matter that it's not even clear if this exists or not it's not even clear if they would be stable so you could if if you could even open up a wormhole then you would pass your first particle through it and it would collapse back on itself which mm. is not a good thing if you're going to try and travel through yep. it stargate style <laughs> um so uh, i don't think it's going to revolutionize travel
1: no. <laughs> but they do but exist
0: they potentially, potentially exist. exist they okay. potentially exist they potentially exist everywhere on a absolutely microscopic scale sort of flashing in and out of existence um, but that's sort of much Which too is, small to detect. But
1: Right. Yeah. So they'd be small, but black holes are big, massive holes
3: that go nowhere that have a singularity.
0: Yes. That's right.
3: Uh, we have a question. Uh, the question is, can you do the gravitational wave chirp? Don't even know what that is, but I'm <laughs> guessing you do.
0: I'm I'm guessing that's probably come from a colleague.
3: <laughs> so
0: <Sorry. laughs> I can give some story to this. I've been made to sing this once on radio before, probably by the same colleague who was just just texted we in. Can <laughs> <laughs> yep. We can do
3: singing.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. You're going to all be asked to join in then. <laughs>
3: sure.
0: Uh, so the idea is is that uh, gravitational waves. Um, the 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 frequency with which we detect these gravitational waves is actually the same frequency that you can hear with and they make oh. a very characteristic sound so as the two black holes come together they travel they they come closer and closer together and so the frequency and the amplitude of the wave increases as uh, in time and so i guess i'm going to have to sing it now uh it it makes a characteristic chirp which is a whoop sound <laughs> and i'm not going to do that again but it's your turn now <laughs> That's
3: it. Oh, that was a different tone <laughs>
0: than I did. Yep. That's a, The different tone is just a different mass black hole. <laughs>
3: ah. That's Perfect. very, so I didn't know what a black hole sounded like. And no. now, now I know. That Who is knew?
0: a gravitational wave chirp.
3: We are running out of time. So I want to ask the question I was wondering about. So from my understanding of black holes is that they have lots of mass and they just like suck everything into them. So does that mean that like eventually we're going to get up and you've, get to a point where like a black hole just like sucks in more and more and more and more and more things until it's sucking in other black holes. And then like the whole universe gets sucked into a black hole and that's how it ends. Is that what's going to happen or will it keep expanding out and just, yeah. How will the universe end? I guess is my question.
0: Okay. So there's there's two parts to that question. I suppose um, this is actually a misconception about black holes. Now, I asked this question to my third-year university students and I also asked this same question to uh, a bunch of grade 3s today. And the grade 3s answered this much better than my third-year <laughs> university students. Uh, so you can th- do the thought experiment of saying, what happens if I take the sun in the centre of our solar system and I squeeze it down to a black hole without changing any other conditions in the universe? So I now have a black hole in the centre of the solar system and it weighs the same amount of the sun. So what happens to the orbit of the Earth?
3: stays the same?
0: It stays the same, right?
3: Some like a grade three. You
0: like a grade three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> isn't Better that than orbit like, slowly getting closer to the sun anyway?
0: It's slowly getting closer to the sun anyway, but that's not going to now change because of, uh, because of what you've done here. So, in fact, the black hole doesn't suck in, uh, in the way that people usually think about it. Uh, the black hole is just a mass, and you can set up an orbit around a black hole. Um, and, and so, you know, you can have stable systems... So, for example, there is a black hole at the centre of, of the Milky Way and it weighs around about four million times the mass of our sun what? and stars and orbit we're around fine. it and we're <laughs> fine and we're absolutely fine. So the universe is not going to end by everything falling into a black hole. Now, the universe may have a catastrophic end from a bunch of other causes, <laughs> um, but we've got a while to wait for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, on the universe ending, I mean... Recently, didn't we find out that it's all expanding faster than we ever thought, and we're all just whizzing further past, and the universe is expanding constantly.
0: That's right, and that expansion is even accelerating, so it's even sort of getting worse. Uh, and this is what um, Brian Schmidt won, the, you know, the Australian Brian Schmidt mm. won the Nobel Prize for uh, a few years back uh, for this discovery. But yeah, the, the universe is, is continuing, continuing to expand, which basically means that, you know, the density of galaxies or the number of galaxies in our local region is just going to get fewer and fewer and fewer. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So we're going to
1: need the wormholes.
0: We might need the wormholes. Otherwise we'll
1: never meet aliens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is
3: really what this whole thing is about. (laughs) We have sadly run out of time, which I'm very upset about because I want to keep talking about this topic. But maybe we can get you back um, another week to talk more about aliens Mm. and wormholes. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Duncan and Jackie, our previous guests. Next up is Bite Me Down Under. And you have been listening to Is Nothing Sacred. Good night.